I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. Race in America is a daily part of nearly every aspect of our lives, including, of course, education. And that intersection where race, identity, equity, and education all meet, that's where Naila Nasir has dedicated her research, action, and career. Nasir's work centers on what she calls the racialized and cultural nature of learning and schooling. In other words, how to consider identity and racial inequality with the goal to advance equitable access to high-quality education, and how, as a result, school districts might rethink a standardized approach. Some background. Nasir is president of the Spencer Foundation, the Chicago-based funder of education research. Previously, she was a faculty member at the University of California, Berkeley, and served as the university's vice chancellor for equity and inclusion. Nasir is the author of numerous publications, including Racialized Identities, Race and Achievement for African-American Youth, and co-editor of We Dare Say Love, Supporting Achievement in the Educational Life of Black Boys. We discussed her philosophy as well as practical steps educators from K through 12 and beyond can apply from the science of learning and development to change the way kids learn. Here's my conversation with Naila Nasir. Naila, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Yeah, happy to be here. I think you likely have work for life um, in your current ideas and, and efforts and the things that uh, you spend what it seems like. Um, 24-7 thinking about. So, so let's get into it. Um, race. Okay. Race infuses every aspect of our society, obviously, employment, housing, politics, friendships, marriage. Um, what are the core aspects of race in education? Does it differ from the influence of race in all those other parts of our lives? No, I think it's actually all incredibly linked. This is something I've been thinking about a lot recently, that the ways in which race plays out in education, both in terms of how we structure opportunity and then what you know interactions look like inside education spaces, very much mirrors the types of racialized um, processes that happen across every sector of our society. And in fact, it's a little bit problematic to think that education is going to fix all of that. Um, but I do think education is a key part of addressing the ways in which race plays out. Do you think about it in terms of how evolving the way race works in education might fix all the rest of it? Is that kind of the path that as you think about it or the education sector is just where you ended up and so that's where your focus is? No, I think the education sector is where I place my bets, right? Like if, if you know, these problems are longstanding, historical, vast, pervasive, mm. um, but if there's a good lever for changing them, I think education is a great place to center the work. And there's another um, centering of the work in beginning place that uh, I would want to start a conversation with you, and that is around the term racialized identity. Um, you mm. use it a lot. You wrote a book uh, with that as the you know primary portion of the title, and and in there you wrote my use of the term ra racialized identities is an effort to honor the idea that race and thus racial identities is not an inherent category but rather is made racial through social interaction positioning and discourse so 
what is racialized identity and what do you mean by the idea that race is made racial through social interaction, positioning and discourse? What I'm trying to signal there is that race is not race racial categories are not biological categories that that in fact there there aren't biological correlates, right, that that define race. Race is socially constructed. And, you know, at some level, you could say that that means it's not real. But race is actually made very real by the power that it holds in our society and by the ways people are treated in relation to the racial categories to which they are ascribed. So the racialized is partly about um, honoring and keeping in mind that race is something we continue to make and remake again and again and again through mm-hmm. our interactions, through our discourse, through the ways that we talk and um, and think. But there's nothing inherently magical about it. There's nothing inherently um, present about it. Does that make sense? It, it does, and, and it, it leads to something else that, that I was thinking about in you know researching your work. And among the aspects that I found really compelling was this idea that you don't consider the experience that a student with a racialized identity has inside school as being totally separated from that student's experiences outside of school, um, which, which leads me to first question, how do children discover their identities and how do experiences like stereotype and bias um, uh, affect learner identity? Yeah, those are, those are great questions. Um, people typically discover their racial identity when it is called out by someone else. And uh, occasionally, I mean, some, sometimes that's when they're in one type of schooling environment that's more homogenous, and then they enter a schooling environment that is more diverse, and all of a sudden the salience of their race um, is is called kind of onto the floor. When you ask people when they first knew they were whatever race, there's usually a story there. Like people remember the moment when mm. they realized they were different or when they realized they were being categorized by others in a particular kind of way. And I think it's sometimes most interesting in cases where people are of mixed race or racially ambiguous, the ways in which they have to choose categories. They talk about the that there's not really the space for ambiguity. There's not really the space for someone who doesn't fit neatly into one of the boxes. It's kind of when you start to see how powerful the boxes are and how arbitrary they are in some cases. And is there sufficient understanding, do you feel, maybe within um, education, writ large around this idea that inside school and the experiences that a student with a racialized identity may have inside school, um, is, it's not totally separated from that student's experiences outside of school. Do you, are, you, are you hopeful around a growing understanding of that connection or are, are we not maybe there yet? No, I think that that's an important connection. Um, and, and young people will tell you that. When you ask them about their experiences of being racialized, they talk both about things that happen in school and things that happen outside of school, which is both worrisome and promising, right? It's worrisome because you hate to think that schools are places where kids are being racialized in negative ways, though that is the case. But it's promising in that 
uh, if we can create different kinds of school structures and different types of interactional patterns in schools, then you can shift that. And maybe, in, and in some cases, and in our greatest hopes, schools are places where um, students are emotionally safe, where they are cared for, where they are treated as kind of first and foremost human beings worthy of care and teaching, and that schools should be a place that undo or at least kind of mediate what kids are experiencing outside of schools. So in building off of what you just described, are schools places where children should have the opportunity to hone their identities? They learn more about themselves um, and, and build on whatever they kind of have come into the school thinking and feeling and believing about themselves? Or are they places where uh, an awareness of individual identities needs to be primary and where an approach to education needs to be, uh, you know, on the one hand sensitive, but even more than that, o- almost customized to an individualized approach to education that recognizes and takes positive advantage of individual identities. Yes, that's a great question. I think it's both, right? I think schools are both places where young people bring aspects of themselves, and when they come into a space and realize that not all of them is accepted there, they disconnect and disengage. So schools do need to be places that send messages that all of who you are is okay here, kind of as a starting place. At the same time, young people spend an an extraordinary amount of time in school, and that, and during that time, they are thinking about figuring out who they are, who they are in relation to their peers, who they are in relation to the world. And so it's crucial then that schools provide the kind of appropriate fodder for kids to create the most productive, healthy, robust identities possible. And I want to ask you more about um, some of those opportunities and some of the ways that schools do that in, in particular um, some of the casework that you identify in, we dare say love, and how that works uh, with with black male students. Um, but before we get there, um, fast forwarding to the present, just over two years ago, you left Berkeley. Um, you were on the faculty. You served as vice chancellor of equity and inclusion, and you joined the Spencer Foundation in Chicago. Um, first, the obvious side question. Um, did folks hide Chicago's weather history from you as a person who has experienced both <laughs> Chicago and California? Um, that's a strange trade to make. I, I'm going to be honest. I need you to know it was a real dilemma, <laughs> the weather challenges. But ultimately, the opportunity to lead this foundation and do work in education kind of across the field was so exciting that I bought one of those really heavy winter coats that you zip up like from the neck all the way down to the ankles. Yeah, it's a great look. And, you know, it's been, it's been okay. It's been okay <laughs> so far. <laughs> what did inspire you to join and uh, what is your goal? Well, Spencer's just an amazing foundation. And I, I have a, a kind of long personal history with the foundation. It funded my doctoral work, funded my dissertation work. Mm. And and really, there was a. I told this story. There was a program officer here who, at the time when I was coming through my PhD program, was in charge of the um, the dissertation fellowship program, which wasn't just money. Like they gave you money, but they also brought you together 
with your peers across the nation, with fabulous researchers in the field, like people whose names you had only read. And it was actually a program officer during that set of activities who was the first person that I felt like made me feel like I could be a researcher. Look, I could really do this thing. And oh. so I have a, you know, a soft spot in my heart for the foundation just for the way that it's transformed my own professional trajectory. And then in talking to people, realizing that this foundation has done that for so many scholars. And, you know, everywhere I go in the country, people say, you know, the Spencer Foundation changed my life. And so it's just, you know, a real, a real honor to be a part of that changing of people's lives and opening up doors of opportunity for in, in ways that folks might not have imagined for themselves. And, and so to do that, you, you recently outlined um, your clarity of goals and commitments. And you not only talked about the qualities that you'll seek in research, um, rigorous, relevant, equitable, transformative, collaborative, but you got pretty specific in terms of key areas of interest. Um, one of those areas you identified as cultivating equitable educational spaces. Um, how do you define equity? What is equity? And what do equitable educational spaces look like? Well, you really do your homework. Um, <laughs> so, well, yeah. uh, on the so, interesting yes. people, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I think by, by equity, what we mean is the broadening of opportunity. And in particular, what do how are districts organized? How are schools organized? How are classrooms organized? How does instruction occur in ways that produces opportunity for all, in ways that disrupts some of the kind of racialized inequalities that we see so often across systems in our society? And so we frame that initiative around cultivating equitable educational spaces so that we weren't just talking about the production and reproduction of inequality, but that we were able, we were kind of honing in on what happens when things go right? What do we know about that? What can we learn about that? How can we um, continue to support the creation of spaces where opportunity is opened? But listening to what you just described, is equity possible? Do you think of equity as a North Star or do you see it as a realistic destination um, that through work that you do and, and others that, that you hope to scale, let's say? Yeah, I think equity is possible. I don't think I could do this work if I didn't believe that. I think the challenges are great. I think the history of our country would suggest that we have not, as a nation, really invested in equity. In fact, we've invested in inequality to maintain the privilege and uh, privilege for some but I do think it's possible, and I feel like I've seen it. Like I've seen systems, at the very least, become more equitable. Again, it's part of why I'm in education, because I think it gives you a bounded space. Like part of what I was excited about in my work as vice chancellor at Berkeley was here we have this campus, and it's a huge campus and lots of people on it, but it's our campus, and we get to kind of figure out the policies and the practices and the programs that we need to make this place more equitable. So I kind of feel like schools offer that. So whether you're talking at the district level or at the school level or at the classroom level, it's a bounded space. And within that space, I think it's completely possible to create equity. So that's an excellent example of equity, of an opportunity to create equity. Um, and mm -hmm. you, you said a moment ago that you've seen it. And I guess perhaps uh, Berkeley, you've just described one um, example. Are there other examples that come to mind of, of what equity in a classroom or in a school district um, looks like? 
So, yes, I do feel like I have seen great examples of what equity work looks like in practice. One example comes from um, a book project that I did a few years ago with a group of mathematics teachers. Uh, these were teachers in a large urban public high school who had created a curriculum and a way of structuring mathematics instruction such that they eliminated race and gender gaps in achievement and persistence by the time students reached their senior year of high school. So, you know, kids came in in freshman year, there were gaps by gender and by race. By the time they left, those gaps no longer existed. And one of the keys there in their work was about holding high standards and doing work in mathematics classrooms that was about thinking practices and, 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 and creating tasks that no matter what kind of level you started with, that everyone had the same opportunities to, to think together and grow their understanding of mathematical concepts. And, th- and those classrooms were also places where teachers did a lot of identity work with students, helping to have them rethink what counts as being a mathematics learner, building mathematics learning identities, making it clear that anyone can develop a strong mathematics learner identity. And so I do feel like um, creating equity and equitable spaces is is possible. And so interesting to hear you say that because it also uh, seems to provide evidence of what you were talking about earlier about schools being both a place that help students, children evolve their identities. You just talked about children kind of gaining the identity of being a mathematician and able to do math problems, in addition to being places that create customized opportunities um, for individual identities. By my listening to what you just said, um, a real example of how uh, creating equity actually can help uh, evolve personal identity as well, perhaps. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point that they're they're intertwined. And part of what it part of what equity means is that people have the full opportunity to develop all of who they are, to develop their full potential. Mm. I think that for me is um is a really foundational piece of understanding that what we're really talking about is creating structures and experiences and processes where people can develop fully all of the potential that they are born with. Can that be done at scale? I think it can be done at scale. I mean, we scale education, right? It's, we, we teach it. I mean, we organize schools and school systems kind of en masse. So there's already a, a kind of at-scale system. I think what we're talking about is how do you support educational systems financially, with respect to professional development, with respect to the kind of cutting-edge ideas about what great teaching and learning looks like, how do we support those systems so that they can produce the kind of optimal results that we're wanting to see? And I think we can. I think it's about the level at which we, we support the systems that exist, as well as, you know, obviously the creation of, of new spaces. But I think we have the, we have the infrastructure. We're just not um, investing in it as a, as a nation. And thinking about that investment, how do you define the science of learning and development? And how do you want that research to be part of your strategy at Spencer? I would define the science of learning development as the kind of body of work and the in human development, in the developmental sciences, and in the learning sciences that help us understand how 
learning and development happen and the ways in which they are intertwined. So I think that that's a part of our work here at Spencer because, one, it's, and it's, incredibly, it's an incredibly rich emerging field of study where people are starting to make connections across subfields in ways that is both exciting and impactful. And I think the work that the SOLD initiative has done along these lines is really important. And um, I think it's um, creating those interdisciplinary conversations um, research syntheses across subfields, I think is going to be really critical to our ability as scholars to speak to practice, to speak to policy in ways that um, uh, that that has impact. And, and do you think about that impact in terms of higher ed versus lower ed? Is there a part of the education spectrum where you specifically want to make an impact or where you think Spencer ought to be focusing or beginning or uh, the education spectrum is the education spectrum and, and let's use what we learn from uh, the, the science of learning and development to make the impact where we can? Yeah, I think we think across the education spectrum and the science of learning development work is kind of one example of a body of work that is being organized in a way that has great potential to make impact. And and there are others as well. Um, but I think if, if we're talking about learning and development in particular, I think there's great possibility if we're thinking about pre-K environments and if we're in, in terms of what we know about brain development and social-emotional development, as well as K-12 environments, but also higher ed. I mean, I think that higher ed environments are very often organized in ways that do not align with the needs of late adolescents or early adults developmentally. So I think there's there's definitely possibility across the education spectrum. And, can, and, and my goal at Spencer isn't, isn't necessarily to fix all of education. I, I don't think I could do that. I mean, of course, that's like the, yes. you know, that's the on the horizon goal all the time. Yes. But I think my goal is really about how we leverage research and researchers to be more useful to the improvement of education systems. And can that usefulness, can that utility, can the insights from science, from the science of learning and development, can they be applied to the issue of equity? Or do you see real connections there? I do see real connections. And I feel like this past year, I've had some kind of just personal intellectual insights around this, that part of the part of what inequality and racial inequality do is, is define some folks as more deserving and some folks as less deserving, some folks as more human and some folks as less human. So actually, equity is very much about honoring the learning and developmental needs of all kids, right? And that the problem is, and what, what inequity is, is that we're honoring those needs for some and not for others. And I've, you know, this, this incident happened with my son, um, about a year and a half ago. He's 14 now, so he was about 12 and a half. And I, I won't go through the long story, but it was essentially kind of racialized incident in our neighborhood while my son, goofy kid, was standing outside holding a carton of ice cream, waiting for his dad to come pick up this carton of ice cream. And as he's standing there on the corner where we live, um, a neighbor comes by and kind of questions his right to be there, questions his presence in the neighborhood. Mm. And, and, and in the aftermath of that incident, 
I realized that part of the challenge was that his kind of developmental needs as a 12-year-old goofy kid were not honored because this adult was seeing him as a threat that wasn't aligned with where he was developmentally. And then he had to reconcile, wow, why, why am I being treated like I I'm, have some ill intent when I'm really just standing here waiting for my dad? And and it's that, it's that thing where he was not allowed to developmentally be just where he was. He actually had to have a whole other lens on how the world is viewing him. That, that's inequality, right? And and that and that's what it means to navigate unequal systems that you're that you're faced with these tensions and conundrums that everyone's not faced with. Is that perhaps as well an example? May not be the first example for your son's personal life, but uh, an example of what you meant earlier in this conversation when you said that. Uh, race is something that uh, people become aware of more through external incidents than it being a classification. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this was a combination of race and gender, Mm. like right at a moment when physically his body starts to look more like a man than like a child. So there's this, there's always this kind of developmental and gendered piece that, that plays in there as well. In We Dare Say Love, you and the other editors take on the issue of what it means to educate black male students in a large urban district. You follow the development and implementation of the African-American Male Achievement Initiative in the Oakland Unified School District. In fact, following a small group of black male educators who changed district policy and practice to create a learning experience for black boys that was rooted in love – And you open the book with some pretty direct language. You write, it has been difficult to comprehend a sincere relationship between public schools and black male students, friends, or all black children, for that matter, that is predicated on love. You continue to the American school, with few exceptions, is too often the place where black students come to know that they are despised, feared, and deemed to be of little to no human value to the world. I had to pause and regroup. After that, it is so direct and so depressing to consider. What made you write it? That's the kind of reality we we observed, and the reality in the literature historically. Um, it is it is depressing. Um, but what, what what I think is maybe the silver lining around that is just the power of the human spirit and the power of the community spirit that allows people to not only survive, but, but thrive, even in spaces that were not meant for their thriving. So um, I think there are aspects of it that are daunting for sure, but the ways in which people and communities organize to create holistic spaces is, is really inspiring. And I think AAMA is such a great example of that. Yeah, it it it's, it seems like just an extraordinary uh, case study and an example. Um, did it? Did the experience make you or inspire you to rethink the intersection of um, discipline and school and education, or did it um, support what you already knew or believed? Do do we in America need to rethink um, the role of discipline within our schools? Uh, absolutely. I think that was one of the first things that bubbled up in the data um, was that 
these classrooms and and these were all black all male spaces with instructors that were mostly recruited in from kind of community based organizations these were spaces where discipline looked differently and it took us a while to kind of theorize like okay what's different about this because you have like the gut level sense this isn't standard school discipline practice but to figure out how to talk about what it is <laughs> took us took us a little while but and that's where i think this notion of the work being centered in love um first started to show up mm. because the discipline practices in these spaces assumed good intent they assumed that these young men and boys were going to be productive members of the classroom community they assumed um that the young men were capable brilliant um and and that they had tremendous potential and so with those assumptions on the table the ways in which um two two things happened one w- were were really noteworthy one of the set of things that happened was about when there was um a need to have rules to have policies to hold kids accountable to those rules that was done in community so it wasn't just the instructor doing that to kids it was the classroom community deciding what their rules and norms and values were going to be mm-hmm. and holding one another to those and the second thing was that they had a much broader notion of what counted as a discipline worthy moment so there were things that in in the in the space sometimes happened where in a typical classroom it would be a moment of direct discipline and in these spaces it just didn't didn't emerge into that either because it was a highly emotional moment and the instructor saw that there was actually a set of really deep and important emotional needs behind what had just occurred or because people didn't see it as a major enough infraction to stop instruction or to create a moment of contention with kids. Also for instance there was a a moment that just sticks in my in my head where we were observing a classroom and a I think this is maybe a ninth grader African American boy comes in with a hoodie on and you know hoodies are not allowed in the school or in the classroom and the instructor looks at him and says you know you can take that off now you're safe here and so he's he's enforcing the the discipline quote unquote but he's also acknowledging that the hoodie serves a purpose and it's a protective purpose mm. for this young man and to say you are safe here is to say i know you are using that as protection and you don't need that protection here very different than saying hats are not allowed take off the hoodie right there's an acknowledgement of the humanity and the human need in that yeah that's a that's a heck of a response and and when you when one reads the stats widely and some of which you cite about the difference in discipline rates and suspension rates of black male students versus uh, Latinos or white students or that 2015 New York City study that uh, is in there on mm-hmm. uh, 57% of all male disciplinary cases were black boys, 61% of all female disciplinary cases were black girls, and yet black students made up 28% of the student population. Um, when you look at the, the data that, that you cite and that others cite, um, no doubt that um, the change that uh, you just described um, from that one teacher and that you describe more widely in the approach that uh, the African-American Male Achievement Initiative takes um, certainly uh, lessons and, and things that, that when we talk about scale, um, perhaps those are 
things that could scale. Um, to to close yeah. out, and I don't mean to get greedy here. It's not like uh, we're not all really grateful for the work that you've done up to this point in your career. But um, what's next? I think what's next is figuring out how in this role from the platform of a foundation, how can we support scholars in doing work that has the kind of impact that they want to have? And how do we galvanize, synthesize, and push forward on the kinds of things we know create more equitable educational environments? So that's kind of what we've been thinking about and working on here and um, looking forward to the progress we're going to be able to make on those things. We look forward to uh, the, the results of that and uh, you know the work that you've done up to this point. Thank you. Thank you for that work, and thank okay. you for your time today. Yeah, thank you. That was my conversation with Naila Nasir. My thanks to Naila for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.